listening to a podcast from The National. DP World is asserting the validity of a London arbitration court ruling in its favour against the government of Djibouti over the seizure of the Dorila container terminal. This is a row that will have far-reaching consequences for investment in Africa and confidence in DP World's vision. Japan's SoftBank has performed staggeringly well in its latest earnings. We'll take a look at what's driving that. And for new job seekers, the most challenging part of starting their careers, they say, is, well, securing that first job. And that's what we have leading this episode of the Business Extra podcast coming from the National's Abu Dhabi newsroom. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor. Later on, we'll be discussing the momentum building in the downstream segment of the energy sector that's refining petrochemicals and plastics with Jennifer Niana. But for now, Chris, the latest twist in the saga between DP World and the government of Djibouti. What's been happening? It's been quite a roller coaster ride, really. The whole thing kicked off on Thursday when, uh, as you say, the London Court of International Arbitration ruled against Djibouti's, uh, the Djibouti government's seizure of the, the um, Dora Laporte in, uh, container terminal in um, February, um, which is uh, on the Red Sea coast. And the court ruling confirmed the illegitimacy of the African state's um, decision to wrest control from, from DP World. The court stated uh, that the concession agreement, which was um, awarded to DP World in 2006, remains valid and binding, notwithstanding Law 202 and the 2018 decrees. Now, that refers to the reasons Djibouti gave in February for why they were taking or trying to take, or did in fact take back back control uh, of the terminal. Shortly after the ruling, Djibouti then said the concession agreement contained severe irregularities and threatened the national interest and sovereignty of Djibouti. Um, The government added the Republic of Djibouti does not accept this sentence and it also said it had ruled, the government, that the law of a sovereign state cannot be enforced by that state, which effectively is saying we do not recognise international law as everywhere else recognises it. Um, So that was their response on the Thursday, Friday. A day or so later, DP World then hit back and it said, stated, its contract to run the port remains in full force and effect. It said, as the court has held, Djibouti does not have sovereignty over a contract governed by English law. It is a well-established fact that, in the absence of an express term to that effect, an English law contract cannot be unilaterally terminated at will. Basically saying, you have to conform by this ruling. It's international law, you have no choice. Um, and in response to, to Djibouti's claims that um, the agreement threatened national interests uh, of Djibouti, DP World added that in, in light of the most recent ruling, plus another, another one uh, in its favour earlier, that the Djibouti government's attempts to terminate it cannot have anything to do with the fundamental interests of the people of Djibouti. So it really started heating up. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's coming to a head is... In July, DP World threatened legal action against third parties if they violated the contract for the Dorilla Terminal, i.e. if they used it without going through DP World. And this came um, in light of the opening of the first phase of a Chinese-built international free trade zone. So if you sort of ask yourself, why did Djibouti do this in the first place? Do they have a, a you know, a, a, a secretive sort of arrangement with the Chinese? Is, is it something to do with that? Did the Chinese say, we'll build this free zone but we want control of the port. 
Um, so, so that was that was the, what happened in the past few days. And at the moment, the situation is that DP World has basically said it will now reflect on the ruling and review its options, uh, but it hasn't provided details on what those options might be. Chris, I mean, what you say there about the, the origins of this dispute and Chinese involvement in uh, in, in Djibouti as, as they are involved in, in Africa, and they've mm. been they've been there for a long time and, and doing a lot of investment, particularly in terms of infrastructure um, and uh, developing uh, some of the aspects of the economies there. Um, I, I know the Djibouti government were concerned that the the terminal wasn't being used in Dorla as much as it could be to full capacity. But, you know, I think there's a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding here of, of DP World as a company, um, which is very much driven by performance, very much driven by its strategy to um, latch onto fast-growing markets. Um, it isn't just in Djibouti. It's in Somaliland next door, mm-hmm. um, where it has the Berbera port. Um, it's also in Egypt, Algeria. Um, it's got a terminal in Rwanda. Um, it's got... Uh, a, term, a logistics hub deal in place in Mali. It's won a concession uh, in Congo for a port. It's un, it's developing a terminal in Senegal. Africa is really important for DP World's over, overall strategy. It's in North America, in Canada, in Latin America, in the Caribbean. It's in fast-growing economies in Asia, Pakistan, India, the Europe. Philippines. Absolutely, Australasia. I mean, it's the world's fourth biggest ports operator. It has a duty to its shareholders. Um, it's very efficient and well-run organization. Um, it keeps reporting record volumes in terms of, of cargo trade moved. Um, and it, it, it would seem completely incongruent with its behavior up to this point that it would be in any way underutilizing the Dorilla terminal. So there's there's clearly a a kind of tension here between what a state thinks is in its national interests mm-hmm. and how it views how a business is running itself mm-hmm. or a corporation is running mm-hmm. itself versus an overall strategy for a company like DP World. And the aspects of investor confidence in Africa and countries like Djibouti and the Horn of Africa, which everyone agrees has a lot of potential. Yeah, yeah but also confidence in how the management of DP World handles this going forward. So as we said, it's been going on for several months now, perhaps even the origins even longer than that. Mm, mm-hmm. With all these expansion plans in place around Africa and elsewhere, it needs to kind of deal with this quite quickly, doesn't it, to kind of get it going. And it's asserting its right in terms of the arbitration court ruling, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're at any kind of solution. No, definitely not. I, I think... I think another point as well uh, to to help it, if you like, um, reaffirm investors in Africa their opinion of the company as a company, is that it's been um, according to Djibouti. Although whether this is the case or not, or what levels we're talking about, we don't know. Uh, it has been offered a uh, financial recompense, um, which it's refused. Was so, it half a billion dollars? Yeah, something, something like in the region that. of that was the reports. But I mean, it's got to be worth more than that. So I mean, I, I, I haven't. I, I mean, the inv- the investment alone that, that must have been put into place there has got to be worth more than that. Yeah. But, but equally, if if Djibouti are willing to offer half a billion, how much is it really worth? Yeah, to them? yeah, absolutely. And I, I think DP World not stepping down um, does give a message to other investors in Africa, particularly those perhaps that. 
um, where the the government has, shall we say, sway um, more so than um, than other places. Um, it, gi- it, give, it gives those governments a bit of a, a you know a bit of a heads up on look you know we will invest with you but you've got to treat us you know like what we are a company that is designed to make profit um, as well as benefit your economy so you know don't treat us any other way. Um, I think the other interesting aspect, of course, is the recent, as we spoke about recently, the um, the tie-up uh, peace between Eritrea and um, Ethiopia. Um, that's a 20-year war that's ended. Now, Ethiopia, Eritrea has an extremely long red coast, uh, uh, red sea coastline. Um, Djibouti's is tiny. Um, assuming that those two countries maintain a peace accord and develop, as they say, the economy through this, that and the other, then that may well prove another uh, attractive um, point of interest for uh, DP World. But I think also this this Chinese aspect is really intriguing because part of the Belt and Road uh, Initiative, the global Belt and Road Initiative, you know, to connect basically everywhere to everywhere, um, relies upon things like ports and, and terminals and cargo terminals. So... I would imagine that there's, there may be, as well as DP World saying, look, don't push us around, they may well also be sending um, a message of, you know, a, a cloaked message um, to the uh, to Chinese investors uh, in Africa saying, you, you, we're not going to just be rolled over by you. Um, so I think it does it does have a major impact on the way the company is perceived in, in uh, Africa and the way the shareholders perceive the company's performance in situations like it finds itself in Africa. Another big story uh, which broke this week was uh, that Japanese company SoftBank reported a staggeringly good performance mm, yeah. for its first quarter. Yeah. Uh, profit was up 49%, yeah. uh, mainly off the gains from its investment portfolio in tech. Yeah, But it's yeah. ostensibly a, a telecoms company. It is. It's a telecoms provider, effectively, yeah. Um, the, the investment uh, unit, Vision... Um, the Vision Fund, which uh, the SoftBank founder Masayoshi Son set up in 2016, it has already attracted $100 billion. Um, now, the operating profit was boosted by a 245 billion yen gain from um, returns from that fund, investments from that fund already. Now, that made up almost half of the operating profit of 715 billion yen, which is about 23.5 billion dirham. So, it, these are huge numbers. Um, it's it's of interest in this region because, of course, um, Mabadala Venture, uh, which is a unit of uh, Mabadala Investment Company that was set up in October last year, oversees the parent company's $15 billion commitment to the fund. Um, and it's one of several in this region. Saudi Arabia as well, the public investment fund, is committed to invest as much as $45 billion. And in fact, in March, SoftBank and Saudi Arabia agreed to build a $200 billion solar power development uh, in the kingdom, which, when it's finished, will be the biggest in the world. So these are enormous numbers. Um, and it, it vindicates um, Masayoshi Son's decision in the first place to, to launch the fund. It's been hugely attractive to, to not only this region, but regions around the world. And he's also stuck by his guns when uh, there have been there were earlier this year jitters over whether it was uh, you know whether the tech boom as it were was beginning to show signs of uh, of weakness. So 
he's proved that um, that he's he's got the the staying power to stick with it. Well, I mean, certainly the, some of the investments of the Vision Fund, like Flipkart, the online retailer in India, has gained a lot in value. Yeah. I mean, the Vision Fund's invested everywhere in the tech sector. I mean, yeah. ride sharing, you name it, any yeah, yeah. aspect DD, of the business. Yeah, yeah it, it and and it seems to be going well um, in the in these growth areas. Um, I, I would say that one thing that that is also interesting, but it's taken a few years to materialize, is they. The, the US telecoms provider Sprint, Mm-mm. that they took on a lot of debt mm. to buy in 2012. They've been trying to merge it for years. Yeah. And and it looks like they, they will manage a merger with, with yeah. uh, uh, what is it? Uh, it's AT&T, isn't it? T-Mobile. Oh, T-Mobile. Yeah. T-Mobile, that's it. Um, sorry, I lost, lost my, my place for a second. Um, with T-Mobile, which looks like that could happen. Mm. They'll end up with a minority stake in the bigger company, but I assume that'll help. With with a debt pile, it must do, yeah. But as you mentioned, I mean, Masayoshi Son is very much the the coming man these yeah. days. He's gaining a reputation for deal making, um, is giving sort of a, a legendary status, almost Buffett esque. More, yeah. I would say. Yeah, I mean, more, if you yeah. think anyway, luminaries of the last few decades, I mean, Jack Welch built GE mm-hmm. from like a light bulb maker to the yeah. world's biggest, you know, conglomerate multinational. Yeah. I mean, he's getting to that level. Yeah. But to me, I wonder how is there how much of a difference is there between being a great deal maker versus running a great business or being able to run a business well? Um, you know, there there is there is a, a distinction. Yeah, and yeah. he's built this company up, SoftBank, in a relatively short space of time, under forty years. But interestingly, their best deal, the best deal he made, was in two thousand when he invested $20 million in Alibaba, mm. the online Chinese mm-hmm. platform, mm-hmm. which by 2014, when it IPO'd, was worth, well, let me get my notes again, $60 billion. <laughs> That's not a bad return, In 14 years. Yeah. That's really yeah. fast. So, I mean, yeah. and that really made his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, he's aggressive. He's visionary. As you said, he sticks by his guns. There's certainly kind of a personality aspect to him. Yeah, I think without doubt he's he's that kind of um, figure. He's becoming, as you say, legendary um, if you can be such a thing and, and still exist. Um, I think the next few months and uh, possibly the next year or so will will test his um, his visionary ability. Um, depending upon you, which which uh, areas you look at, uh, he's invested in. Um, we see already companies like Facebook um, having their values hammered. Uh, Tencent also had its value hammered. In fact, the, the biggest loss in a single day of a, a company's value ever, I think, at about $155 billion uh, when its shares plummeted. And I don't think that's unique to those two companies. Um, so it could be that we're becoming towards a sort of a ceiling where uh, of almost unrestrained growth of these companies. So where he has invested, for instance, with Didi in uh, a ride-hailing app in Japan, perhaps he's going to shift focus to areas that are not yet reaching their full growth potential and, and may well either come out of or not be as affected by these tech giants um, if they start to show strain. So... It'll be an interesting six, 12 months, I think, for uh, for how he, how he goes. And on the national.ae website, another story uh, that caught our attention, uh, it was a survey from the uh, jobs website, bait.com. Um, they, they found that uh, out of 1,293 graduates across the Middle East and North Africa that they surveyed, that 
um, while many of them are optimistic about their careers, um, getting over that first hurdle of, of finding of landing that first job, they're finding it difficult to mm. actually make that job happen. Mm. There's not to be specific. This isn't there aren't any jobs. Mm. It's just that they don't know how to convert yeah. interest into an actual job. Yeah, it, it's it was a very interesting set of figures actually. Um, we can kind of because most of them were pretty optimistic about their job prospects, and with tying it back to SoftBank, with such things as, as the uh, the investment in the solar power plant with um, Saudi Arabia, which will create thousands of jobs, um, and such investments that are involved that are involved with companies in this region um, or, or funds in this region will create jobs here, which is good news for for job seekers um, when they leave. Of course, we've got to bear in mind that. Um, the Middle East and North Africa is one of the most youth, youthful regions um, in the world. There is an estimated 60% of the population is under 25, so, and that's growing. So whilst there isn't as such a shortage of jobs, there are still quite a lot of people chasing the top jobs. Um, and I think one of the things that was, was also interesting, the, the, the top jobs uh, by respondents were engineering and design um, that was cited as the most appealing career choice. Um, followed, interestingly, by advertising and marketing. But what they, they said, what these graduates said when they were responding, that there were main reasons they were struggling to get these jobs, the ones that they want, was a lack of previous work experience, 59% said that, and not knowing how to approach job searching effectively, which was 41%. Now, I mean, could that be something as simple as knowing how to craft your CV I for a specific so. job? I, th I think it is because they said 63% of UAE, UAE respondents said that their educational establishment did not help them to identify or find out how to identify or apply for suitable positions. Um, so perhaps universities could look at this. Maybe they should do, could be doing a bit more. I mean, you know, in the West, particularly the UK and, and, and the US, for years there have been dedicated career advisors in schools and in universities. Um, I'm not absolutely certain what the situation is here but maybe there's a there's a, a niche there that yeah. uh, could be looked at well certainly from my experience i can say that there's a lot of emphasis when you're at university on getting your grades getting mm -hmm. your marks mm -hmm. graduating but perhaps understanding that your first real job when you finish university is finding a job yeah and you have to approach it as yeah. you would any other job nine to f nine to five what am i doing that I need to be doing. So whether it's get you know crafting my applications properly, yeah. maybe seeking advice from people in that industry to know how to craft yeah. my application, yeah. um, hitting the hitting the pavement, if you like, it's a numbers game. Yeah, the more jobs you yeah. apply for, the more yeah. likely you're going to get yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and also interview technique. Yeah, absolutely. Practicing your interviews, yeah. Yeah. making mistakes, yeah. and and understanding that maybe don't apply for your dream job first. Let it be the twentieth thing you try. Yeah. Yeah, because by then your skills yeah. are honed. Yeah. And I think also research into the company that you do want to work for, so that you know when you when you if you get offered a um, an interview, you can not just say this is what I'm good at, but you can say this is how I can help you do what you do better. Well, you can find Chris Nelson or myself, Mustafa Arawi, at LinkedIn.com anytime you want. I think if you want some advice yeah. on how to land that first job, yeah. and we'll promise to show you how not to do it uh, from our own experiences. <laughs> Um, Chris, thanks for being with us. Pleasure, Mustafa. Um, it's uh, just to summarize our little chat. Um, 
as we just heard, uh, if you're looking for a new job, you're a new job seeker, remember that your first job is actually looking for that job. Um, also, DP World um, involved in this protracted dispute with Djibouti. They have had a favourable London court ruling uh, about the seizure of the port, upholding their contract to run it. Um, but this is still a, a testing time uh, for both investor confidence in Africa and uh, and how management at DP World will respond. And the SoftBank founder, SoftBank founder, forgive me, Masayoshi Son is probably the world's current heavyweight champion of dealmakers. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us always at thenational.ae. Jennifer Nian, the Nationals Energy Correspondent, has joined us. Welcome. Thank you. So there's been a lot, a lot of activity in the first half of this year regionally in terms of downstream. And this segment applies to sort of the refining of crude to fuels, the manufacture of uh, chemicals and petrochemicals from or the ingredients of plastics from a barrel of crude Um and in particular, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia, they've been doing a lot of deals. There's a huge investment drive for Rawais in the Western region here to create that as a, a hub for these products. Um, and there's been investments in refineries in India. And everyone seems to be wanting to catch the opportunity of fast growing markets in India and China and elsewhere. But why in particular has this sort of activity been sparked off in the first half of this year? I think the first half of this year saw a revival in crude prices. Uh, producers around the world uh, realize it's a good time to invest upstream, but they realize it's more solid to invest downstream where the fluctuations in the oil prices may have a less impact and they would have stronger growth markets, higher prices as you venture further into specialty chemicals, you know, agri-nutrients and that sort of thing. And producers, especially in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia and also, um, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, ADNOC, have realized it's a very lucrative business to get into. They've seen the sort of um, economies of scale in India and in China, where you have these big companies like Reliance, headed by Mukesh Ambani, who is now Asia's richest man. They realize it's an opportunity to be made, that you, you don't just have to produce crude and sell it and you know earn revenues. There's, there are, there's much more to a barrel of crude than just crude. Yeah, it's uh, getting extracting as much value as possible out of that barrel. Yes. So it isn't just about selling crude to yes. to to markets like Japan and China, but also saying actually, if we do something with the crude first, yes. we can charge you more for that. So we have these large facilities in China and India to refine oil to get further down the value chain to making chemicals. And producers in the Middle East have realized that they can build these massive facilities here in the region itself. We saw early indications of that last year when Saudi Aramco and Sabic, the fourth largest chemicals producer in the world and, and the region's biggest uh, chemicals company, signed a memorandum of understanding to build the world's largest uh, oil to chemicals complex on the Red Sea coast in Saudi Arabia. This was a very strategic decision because technology has evolved to such an extent that you can now build integrated refineries. Earlier, it was just a, a refinery on, let's say, in the West Coast, Yambu, 
and which would refine crude and that was sold to markets or consumed here or sold to power plants to make to to, to generate electricity so the, these are the the reasons why uh, the timing for this this sort of shift in momentum uh, in this part of the world for the downstream segment um, now there are sort of wider trends at work as well that have an impact on this. And I can't quite understand, and I'll explain why, whether they are good or bad. But for example, the use, the sing, use of single plastic, single-use plastics out of favor, plastic bags, straws, that kind of stuff is, is on the way out, clearly. Also, transport fuels, there's some suggestion that we've seen sort of the peak of the use of transport fuels because there will be a shift to electric and hybrid vehicles. So does, the, does this contradict the move into the, the bigger move into downstream? I don't think it contradicts because there is still demand for plastics. There's still demand for uh, vehicles in Asia, in China and India in particular, because the, the middle class demand or the middle class boom um, has not really fully happened. If you look at India in particular. So there's still... Um, there are still millions of people who would need to buy their first car, who would need to, you know, consume more plastics. So there's still a segment to be served. But if you look at the other side, if you look at electric vehicles, for instance, they would still need plastic. They would still need compounds. And um, a producer like Borouge or Borealis, which is a partner of Borouge with Adnoc in Abu Dhabi, they're getting into the electric vehicle segment. They've started producing parts for electric vehicles in India. It's a segment that they're looking to grow. So I think demand for plastics, demand for chemicals will continue. And we've also seen some of these producers move into very special chemicals like agri-nutrients business. So there's much more uh, value to be gained from venturing into more niche segments of the value chain. Uh, Jennifer, specifically uh, Borealis, you mentioned them, the Austrian uh, downstream company. Uh, you met with uh, their CEO today. I did, yes. And he had some interesting things to say. Um, Borealis, as you know, is involved with Borouge, which is a joint venture between Adnoc and Borealis, which is owned by both uh, OMV, Austria's uh, national oil producer, and Mubadala Investment Company here in Abu Dhabi. They are looking to add more partners to their chemicals facilities in Abu Dhabi, which currently produce around 4.5 million tons of polypropylene and a few other compounds. Abu Dhabi has a plan to triple the production from these facilities. And Alfred was um, telling... Alfred Stern. Alfred Stern. Yeah. Alfred, Alfred Stern mentioned that they were in discussions with more partners for these facilities in Abu Dhabi, and they're also looking to perhaps partner with Adnoc and Aramco in their Indian refinery. Um, as you know, Adnoc and Aramco signed an agreement last month to develop a $44 billion petrochemicals and refining complex on the western coast of India in Ratnagiri. Uh, it's a massive investment. Once completed, I think it'll be the second largest refining and chemicals complex in the world. So it's an exciting time for Abu Dhabi companies, first Adnoc and now Borealis, to look outside of Abu Dhabi and venture into newer markets and you know get into partnerships with the consumers. 
Well, you can read that article of uh, Jennifer's at thenational.ae, as always, as well as all our other coverage of business. Uh, Jennifer Niana, The National's energy correspondent, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. So that was the latest on the downstream sector. Uh, I mean, it, there's so much happening there. Competition uh, from around the region and the world. Uh, lots of changes in terms of market structure and habits. Uh, but they all represent opportunity, particularly for our uh, national producer here in Abu Dhabi. Um, and it means that we can get as much added value out of every barrel of crude that's pulled out of the ground. So that was the Business Extra podcast. All that remains is to thank our producer, Kevin Jeffers, and to ask you to join us again next week. 